Greetings, friends. I'm Mark Huddle, professor of history at Georgia College and director of the college's Center for Georgia Studies. Welcome to the latest collaboration between the Center and WRGC 88.3 Milledgeville's National Public Radio Station. This evening, we have a special treat for the music lovers out there. Johnny Cash, country music legend, cultural icon, an artist beloved and revered by multiple generations of Americans. From his Sun Records recordings in the 1950s through his brilliant American Recordings albums made with producer Rick Rubin in the 1990s and early 2000s, Cash was a mainstay on the country, pop, and even the college radio charts until his death in 2003. If you are of a particular age, you'll remember that Johnny Cash parlayed musical fame into network television variety program that aired for three seasons from 1969 to 1971, a tumultuous period in our national history. There was a time in the 1960s and 70s that Cash seemed to be everywhere, sharing not just his music, but also his politics. In the 60s, Johnny Cash released a series of concept albums that presented stories about race, the dignity of labor, indigenous rights, prisoners' rights and prison reform, war and peace, and his Christian faith. On his TV show, he drew attention to all those issues, and he also declared his support for Richard Nixon's handling of the Vietnam War and made common cause with conservative evangelist Billy Graham. He also criticized Nixon's failure to bring American troops home, featured the music of counterculture, and interviewed student activists who opposed the war. In doing so, he thrilled audiences across the political spectrum, and he enraged audiences across the political spectrum. He was lauded and denounced. He refused to fit neatly in any ideological box. He was, to quote a famous Chris Christopherson lyric, a walking contradiction, partly truth, partly fiction. Indeed, there seemed to be many Johnny Cashes, or was it that for all the paradox and contradiction, he was a kind of cipher who could be all things to all people? Or was his politics little more than a crass commercial calculation designed to expand the fan base and maintain relevance in the cutthroat world of the country music marketplace? So many questions, so little time. Luckily, we have the perfect person with us to help make sense of this fascinating artist. Our guest, Michael Stewart Foley, is the author of an excellent new book titled Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash, recently published by Basic Books. Dr. Foley is a historian of American political culture and American civilization at the University of Grenoble in France. He's the author of the award-winning Confronting the War Machine, Draft Resistance During the Vietnam War, published in 2003 by the University of North Carolina Press, and Front Porch Politics, The Forgotten Heyday of American Activism in the 1970s and 1980s, published in 2013 by Hill and Wang. He's also the author of a great little book about the punk band The Dead Kennedys and their album Fresh Fruit for Rotting Vegetables for Bloomsbury's immensely popular 33 and a Third series. His writing has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Sunday Globe, The Guardian, and a host of other media outlets. 
Citizen Cash is a model of political biography, thoroughly researched and deftly written. Foley's analysis of Cash, his life, and politics is thoroughly contextualized against the backdrop of depression, war, Cold War anxieties, and the upheavals of the 1960s. In doing so, Dr. Foley posits a politics of empathy as a way of understanding Johnny Cash's life, music, and politics. But we should let him explain that to us. Michael Stewart Foley, thank you so much for speaking with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for the wonderful introduction and for having me on the show. Well, we love Genesis stories on this show. Barrels of ink have been spilled writing about Johnny Cash over the years, and there are a few decent biographies out there. What drew you to Johnny Cash's story, and how did you decide to focus the work on his politics? Well, it's kind of a long story, which I'll try to keep short, but the original origin story is that just as I was finishing that book on the draft resistance movement during the Vietnam War, and I had been immersed in studying the Vietnam War for years. In 2002, Sony came out with this historic concert recording of caches that had never been released before. And it's a concert from Madison Square Garden in December of 1969. So being a cash fan, you know, I bought it and listened to it and was surprised when maybe 20 minutes into the show, Johnny Cash starts speaking to the Madison Square Garden audience about the Vietnam War. And I thought, huh, you know, I've been doing all this work on the Vietnam War, and I had no idea that Johnny Cash was this towering cultural figure at the same time. It overlapped with the people that I was studying, even had an opinion on the Vietnam War, you know, let alone would would talk about it to his, you know, nightly audience on his concert tours. So... I got thinking maybe I would write an article, which I eventually did, although it took quite a while because it was kind of a side project while I was working on some of those book projects you mentioned. And after that came out, it got some attention and I started to think, well, you know, maybe there's something else here. Maybe I should explore this a little further and explore beyond the Vietnam War and how Cash engaged with the politics around all these issues in the 1960s. So that was kind of how it started. Did you grow up listening to Johnny Cash? I'm always curious about this because Cash is one of these figures that I remember from my early childhood, family members listening to Johnny Cash records, but he then, in a sense, kind of goes away in in my experience. And then in the 80s, my punk rock friends, if they had any country records at all, it would be a Johnny Cash record. And then in the 90s, the American Recordings albums kind of thrust cash back into the spotlight. So, you know, it kind of surges and recedes like the ocean to some degree. Were you listening to him as, as a young person? I wasn't really. In fact, I'm not old enough to remember the television show, although I have older siblings, at least my oldest brother, who told me in the course of working on this project that he used to watch that show, primarily because it was a chance to see a lot of the younger artists that he showcased on the show who were hard to see on television anywhere else. But my earliest memories of Cash were as a kind of has been, I thought, you know, like in the 1970s and 80s, he was this guy 
who did the occasional special at Christmas on television or some other television special and showed up on television commercials and things like that. He was kind of permanent, you know, as a fixture in American culture, but I didn't really understand the point of him, to be honest. Like I knew from my older brothers and sister that certain cool bands like the Grateful Dead, for example, had covered Johnny Cash songs. And like you say, later, I realized that certain punk bands also had an appreciation for him. But I definitely didn't begin to take him seriously. Didn't really go back to even listening to the prison albums seriously until the American recordings era. And at that point, I was in graduate school and I jumped on that bandwagon like everybody else did. I was fascinated with this guy and the way that Rick Rubin presented him as this kind of outlaw figure again. So I, for the first time, really started to take Cash seriously, both musically and as a cultural figure. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Michael Stewart Foley about the book Citizen Cash, the political life and times of Johnny Cash. Michael Stewart Foley is a historian of American political culture and American civilization at the University Grenoble Alps in France. Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the ninth collaboration between WRGC and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. But until I can find me. A girl who'll stay and will play games behind me I'll be what I am A solitary man Solitary man I've had it to hear be and where The book resonated with me on multiple levels, but one of the things that I remember especially when I was very young and, you know, kind of first encountering the music. I wasn't drawn to the music per se. You know, he wasn't one of my favorite artists or anything like that. In fact, I was quite young and we would visit my mother's family in West Virginia. And I know that they probably had more than one record album, but the only record album I ever saw was the San Quentin record. Mm -hmm. And my cousins who were older than I, would sit and play that record over and over and over again. And especially the novelty song, A Boy Named Sue, they would sit there and they would laugh. And and I, I can remember, you know, it wasn't so much that, the, that I liked the music, but I was drawn to the joy that they were expressing as they listened to it. Like, I didn't really understand it, but I <laughs> knew that, that this was touching them in a way, that it was something that just made them happy. And I was thinking about that as I was wrestling with this, this concept of a politics of empathy. You use this idea, it's really kind of the glue that holds the narrative together, an effective one. What do you mean by the politics of empathy? Well, I came to the idea because I had started examining Cash's politics the way everybody uh, who's ever studied him has. 
through the lenses and categories, political categories that we all use to make sense of American politics. And as you said in the introduction, if you do it that way, if you examine his politics through the usual political categories, then he seems kind of contradictory. And other writers have written about this, how he didn't really make sense. And as you alluded, was it just that he was trying to have it both ways, that he was trying not to alienate parts of his audience, or was he trying to be all things to all people? And just in the course of doing research on the specific political issues that he engaged with, it's no accident that he's talking about them practically on a weekly basis on his on his television show. It's clear that he did not experience politics in an ideological fashion. He didn't come from that kind of background, and he just never accepted it. His mode of experiencing politics was was very personal and visceral, the way it is for a lot of us, right? Mm-hmm. The way that a lot of us engage with politics is through our own experience and how a particular issue affects us. And with Cash, what's really interesting is that the issues that he speaks out on, when he speaks out on them, he speaks out as though he's relating to the people that it most affects. And sometimes that's because he really does have something in his own background, you know, his own impoverished upbringing is the most obvious example, where it makes it easy for him to relate to other people who are down and out. But other times, it's because he took an interest in the plight of other people. And then, whether he knew it or not, had this kind of deep commitment to social realism and to documenting the plight of others. And so he was a tremendous researcher in those concept albums that you mentioned at the beginning. And that's another way in which he kind of learns to empathize with people with whom he did not share the same exact experiences, but he finds a way to relate to them in any case. And so in that way, if you examine him through a politics of empathy, then he's not inconsistent or paradoxical or contradictory at all. He's completely consistent, in fact, because this is the only way that he seems to know how to engage with political issues. You kind of get at the next question I was going to ask, and I am fascinated by the creative process, in particular your creative process. When you started this project, I mean, I I don't want to put words in your mouth, but on some level, it seems like you're writing against ideology, that cash offers us a different way of, of thinking about politics. Did you start this project with a mind towards writing against the ideologies that seem to be kind of tearing our contemporary political moment apart? Or was this something that you came to through the research that you did and and digging into Cash's ideas and the experiences that he had? I definitely didn't start out with the idea that I wanted to write against ideology. In fact, I haven't really even thought about it in those terms exactly. But what happened was part of the process was that I was working on that first cash article, doing the research for it at the same time that I had these other book projects that were coming out. And the two book projects that 
that are kind of embedded in the origins of the Johnny Cash article that I wrote, which was uh, entitled The Politics of Empathy, were this collection of letters that were written about the Vietnam War to Dr. Benjamin Spock, the pediatrician and anti-war activist. But that project grew out of my first project. And that was the first time as I was reading these letters from all kinds of Americans, thousands of people wrote letters to Spock because he was this celebrated figure in American life. You know, he'd written the common sense book of baby and child care in 1946, which had sold millions of copies and people seemed to feel a certain connection to him enough that they wrote him these letters and, and incredibly he would write back to them. But what struck me in reading the letters was that very frequently these letters were written by ordinary Americans who were trying to figure out the Vietnam War themselves in ways that were not ideological, right? That were purely visceral, that they were touched in some way or another by the Vietnam War, either in their own families or their own neighborhoods or communities. And they either were really angry with Spock because of something he had said, or they were really supportive of something that he had said. And then that informed this other book that I wrote, Front Porch Politics, which is about activism in the 70s and 80s that also isn't really based on ideology. And, and the point I make in that book is that after the 60s, everybody was kind of a, an activist in waiting. It's like everyone, had, everyone in America had breathed in the, the ways of being an activist. And many people who never thought of themselves as activists, and in fact, who, who didn't like the activists of the 1960s, turn out to be activists in the 1970s and 80s because some particular issue affects them personally. So I had this idea that had been growing out of my work for a while about people experiencing politics in ways that aren't accounted for by the political pundits who set the terms of how we think about and talk about politics. And then at the same time that I'm doing all of that work, I was thinking about Cash and trying to make sense of him on the one hand, saying that he supports Richard Nixon. And then on the other hand, writing a song like What is Truth, which effectively supports the right of young people to question Nixon and to question the war makers. And that's when I started to think about him and his experience driving his engagement with politics, driving his citizenship, really, not so much thinking of himself as an activist, but as a, as a kind of public citizen. And it just so happens that the book has now come out at a time when the country is polarized in a way that, you know, the pundits claim is unprecedented. But here was Johnny Cash at the end of the 1960s in an America that people were lamenting was polarized in unprecedented fashion too. So the lessons seem applicable to our time in a way that I didn't really intend. That phrase, public citizenship, you know, that in a sense, Cash is politics is this expression of public citizenship. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Michael Stewart Foley about the book Citizen Cash, the political life and times of Johnny Cash. Michael Stewart Foley is a historian of American political culture and American civilization at the University Grenoble Alps in France. This conversation is the ninth collaboration between WRGC and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South.
And the lonely voice of youth cries, what is truth? Little boy of three sitting on the floor Looks up and says, Daddy, what is war? Son, that's when people fight and die Little boy of three says, Daddy, why? Young man of 17 in Sunday school Being taught the golden rule By the time another year's gone around Maybe his turn to lay his life down So can you blame the voice of youth For asking, what is truth? Let's take his upbringing, which you've mentioned before. Let's take that as an example. What can you tell us about his early years and the ways in which they might have influenced the public citizen that Johnny Cash became later in his life? Sure. You know, the most obvious thing is that he was born in the Great Depression in 1932 and grows up in terrible poverty. But his family is also the beneficiary of a New Deal program that was established by this agency called the Resettlement Administration, the objective of which was to take the landless poor farmers of America and loan them land, livestock, house equipment, things that they would pay back later after they had made their crops over several years. And you know, make them independent, right? And sort of help to lift them out of poverty. So there's two things about that that are important in terms of Cash's future citizenship, which is one is that he he really relates to people who are poor. That includes Native Americans later on when he becomes engaged with Native American issues. I argue that he's engaged with them as much because of his empathy for them as poor people and marginalized people who aren't getting the kind of government help that his family received. And so then there's also this expectation that government should step in, that he understands from a young age that his family was kind of rescued by the Roosevelt administration. And he says as much in many interviews after the fact. So those things are important. And there are other things too. He lived in that town in Dias, Arkansas, in the northeast corner of uh, Arkansas, just off the Mississippi River until he graduated from high school in 1950. And along the way, he lost an older brother who was only three years older than he was, who was doing extra work to help raise money for the family during the Second World War, when the usual story is that Americans you know, thrive, that that's the so-called good war, that economically the country bounces back. But in Dias, they were still struggling. His family was still struggling to get along enough that his brother took in this extra work and died in a freak accident at the sawmill. And so the pain of losing an older brother, and I'd suggest during wartime, also affects the way that he reacts to the loss of so many young people during the Vietnam War. Um, particularly people who are close to him and his family. You mentioned the Native American politics that he becomes involved in. I, I think one of the most interesting chapters in the book pertains to his interest in indigenous rights. How did Johnny Cash become involved in Native American affairs? Well, I think the first thing that's important is has to do with your last question, which is how he 
comes to relate to Native Americans. And, you know, Arkansas is this really interesting place, obviously, in the history of the United States and in the history of the marginalization of Native Americans. It's also really important in the history of the way that white people have kind of imagined themselves as having some kind of Native heritage, right? And, and Cash and his family were among those who thought that they had Cherokee blood in their veins, right? Cash thought this for a long time until he finally confirmed that it wasn't true, but it wasn't unusual for people in that part of the country to think that they had some kind of Native heritage. So he, I think, already related because of where he came from, a kind of frontier place itself, growing up reading lots of books about Native Americans and about the frontier, even before he was an adult, and enough that he started writing songs about it in the late 50s. The first song he wrote was Old Apache Squaw, which is really a song about poverty, about having imagined this woman living on a reservation and all the horrible things that she had seen over the course of her life. And then later, he gets to know the folk singer Peter Lafarge and becomes much more immersed in Native American history. And by then, he's also immersed in all this kind of John and Alan Lomax type recordings and documenting the history of all Americans. And that's what kind of leads him towards eventually making his own concept album, Bitter Tears, about the plight of Native Americans. There was a lot of controversy surrounding that record, was there not? A lot of the controversy was kind of generated by Cash himself, because in those days, he was pretty deep into his drug addiction, and he didn't take kindly to the feedback that he was getting that radio disc jockeys weren't playing the Ballad of Ira Hayes, which was a Lafarge song that Cash had re-recorded, and that Columbia Records apparently wasn't really pushing the record. They were kind of letting him do what he wanted to in the studio, but they weren't out there really trying to sell it so much. And so he took out this full page ad in Billboard magazine, which if you go back and read it now, you know, it's clear that it's a kind of drug fueled rant. And it created controversy because people within country music didn't think it was very nice. Um, and they were sort of angry with him and thought, you know, who does he think he is? You know, he's lecturing all of us on what records we should play. But on the other hand, it also helped to get the records played. And out of all those concept albums of the early and mid 60s, that one's probably the, the one that's best known and remembered. Well, it's certainly one of the most political records, I think, that comes out. I mean, the breadth of it that goes back to you know, settler colonialism and then carries forward to the Kinswood Dam controversy, for instance, in the song, As Long as the Grass Shall Grow. It's actually a really remarkable record. It's not a record that I had actually encountered until around 2003, 2004. And I, I was living and working in Western New York at the time and lived a couple miles away from the Seneca Nation. And on Johnny Cash's birthday uh, every year, the there was a local country music station, a small little independent station. And on Johnny Cash's birthday, they would play 24 hours of Johnny and they would <laughs> open up the request lines and people 
mostly from the reservation, would call in to make requests. And I was lucky one year that the, the DJ invited me to come and sit in the studio and to talk about Johnny Cash and his life. And I listened to the phone calls over and over and over and over again, as long as the grass shall grow. Play as mm. long as the grass shall grow. And I was, I confess, I, I, except for the, the Ballad of Ira Hayes, I was unaware of the Bitter Tears record at that point. And the DJ was, was quite remarkable. He would play two or three or four Johnny Cash songs, you know, the hits, and then he would play As Long As The Grass Shall Grow again. And he played it over mm-hmm. and over and over again. And I was in that area about six years and had the pleasure of going to visit some people at the, you know, the Seneca Nation. And every single house that I was in had a picture of Johnny Cash from the day that he was inducted into the Turtle Clan of the Seneca. He was like uh, uh, he was like a god. I mean, <laughs> they yeah. they yeah. worshipped him, and yeah. and uh, they didn't care about the other hits. You know, they didn't care about the other songs. They may have liked them, but they didn't want to hear them. And on his birthday, they wanted to hear the song that he wrote for them, or that. Peter Lafarge, I guess, wrote for them, but you know they they truly loved him, and I, I think in a lot of ways that that empathy cut both ways. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really important episode, the the Kinzua Dam controversy, which you know isn't very well remembered in American history, but it's one of the things that really outraged Cash and drove him to record a whole album of songs about the history and the plight of native peoples is that, you know, he couldn't believe here he was this guy who had grown up and had been the lucky, you know, fortunate beneficiary of a, of a new deal program, finding out that even as late as the early 1960s, the Kennedy administration had given the green light to the building of this dam, which was going to flood these sacred lands as you say, in Western New York and in central Pennsylvania. And it just outraged him, right? And it was an outrage that he shared with Peter Lafarge, of course, and Lafarge had done this whole record called As Long As The Grass Shall Grow. But Lafarge didn't have, you know, the kind of talent that Cash had. And so the Bitter Tears album is a landmark album because here's this major star from Columbia Records who half the album are Lafarge songs and the other half are Johnny Cash songs for the most part. And it tells a whole history of many different of the native nations and many different ways in which they were betrayed and in which they resisted and fought back. And I think it's a really important record. There's another good book about it that Antonino D'Ambrosio wrote called uh, Heartbeat and a Guitar that's worth checking out. You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Michael Stewart Foley about the book Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash. This conversation is the ninth collaboration between WRGC and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. No headstones, but these bones, Brind Mescalero death moans. See the smooth black nuggets 
by the thousands lying here petrified but justified are these apache tears dead grass dry roots hunger crying in the night well, let's uh, move to 1968-69, right? Cash releases two of his most popular albums, At Folsom Prison and At San Quentin. If I'm remembering this correctly, in the 2005 Cash biopic, Walk the Line, uh, that decision to play Folsom is portrayed almost as a, an act of defiance against the record company. Columbia Records. Right, right, um, right. But you show that Cash's performances for prisoners date back to the 1950s. Uh, right. What was it that, that drew him to that carceral politics? What did the Folsom and San Quentin records teach us about the evolution of his politics? Well, I think they're a good example of his politics of empathy, although he had never been convicted and sent to prison. He'd spent a few nights behind bars, mostly for minor infractions while he was on drugs or drunk or something. So there was that. But he had also, since the 50s, been getting invitations to come and perform at prisons. And the first one he performed at was in 1957 in uh, Huntsville, Texas. And he liked the energy that he got from the audience. And he also really, he spoke many times about how he felt and how he felt sorry for the the men who were behind bars who seemed to have their lives just kind of taken out of them soulless you know he called them and so for me those records especially the Folsom record which was not really accurately portrayed in that film because Columbia had agreed to him doing a live prison recording before this. He was going to do it at Leavenworth, I think, but he was in rough shape because of his drug addiction at the time. And he only resurrected the idea when he got a new producer in Bob Johnston and he had gotten himself mostly off of drugs by 1968. So they take it to Folsom. But for me, it's that album is the culmination of this commitment that he had to documentary realism, like the sound of the prison itself is almost as important as the song selection and the performances that he and his band put in. You know, it's all about taking this experience, trying to put the American record buyer into the prison next to the prisoners, you know, listening to the show and listening to all the sounds of the prison, including the voice of what sounds like the warden calling out prisoner numbers and the clanging of cell doors and things like that. And I don't think, you know, the Lomaxes could have done it any better. Oh, there's a, a great line in the book where you say that if you want to start a, a fight between Johnny Cash fans, ask them to choose between the Folsom Prison record <laughs> right. and the San Quentin record. Well, I got to ask you, man, which is it, Folsom <laughs> or San Quentin? <laughs> so I'll, I'm going to start the argument then. So for, for me, it's a clear win for the Folsom record, the first one, because he goes to Folsom, a place that he played before, right? And he played San Quentin before too, but he goes to Folsom with a set list that's really written 
for the prisoners in a way that the San Quentin set list to me isn't. The Folsom set list, if you go back to the original record, and even the box sets now where you it was two concerts that they performed in the late morning and early afternoon, they performed all these songs that were prison themed songs, or if they weren't prison themed, they were, you could imagine them being prison themed, like Dark as a Dungeon, you know, the Merle Travis song. But in San Quentin, as you say, he's got a boy named Sue and he plays some of his hits. On a Folsom record, there's no Ring of Fire, Walk the Line, you know, there's none of the big hits except for Folsom Prison Blues. And to me, it's it's a more tightly tailored record to the experience. And it's a, an example of his own empathy for these incarcerated men. I think the San Quentin record outsells it and is a bigger hit, partly because of A Boy Named Sue and partly because it, it catches the updraft of the Folsom record too. So by doing the one-two punch like that was a smart commercial move. You know, I'm only being half facetious when I ask the question because I think there's something interesting about the fact that he releases two live albums, two live prison albums, 13 months apart. I grew up in a rural area. We were kind of in many ways cut off from the great cultural mixing board. Uh, and I used to joke that, that when I was in high school and in, in college, when we first started really getting interested in music, I was a, a second record guy. I always liked the second record of a band better than the first, but only because we never got the first records. You know, the first record that ended up in, in my small town, Ohio, was always the band's second record. So I, I will play devil's advocate and say that I like the San Quentin record, and, and largely it's because of the experience of hearing it for the first time. That was the first one that I heard and and knowing what it meant to certain members of my family that you know the happiness that it that it gave them even if i didn't really kind of understand the whole boy named sue thing i was like seven years old or something it made no sense to me whatsoever and i couldn't understand why people thought it was so funny but anyway again this is sort of where the, the the politics of empathy as a concept is so so inc- incredibly useful. We're looking at, at a specific time too, 1968, 1969. Obviously, the most bitterly divisive event of the period is, is Vietnam. As we've mentioned, I think a couple times now, Cash's positions on the war seem on the face of it to be contradictory. For instance, expressing support for Nixon on one hand, expressing support for student activists on the other. Let's apply the politics of empathy to Vietnam and and Cash's positions. How does it help us to kind of understand this contradiction? It's a useful example because it helps to show the way that he could evolve over time on a particular issue, you know, which is also maybe a lesson for our own times that People don't have to have fixed ideas and stick to them forever. He comes to the Vietnam War as a political issue, as a working class veteran. He had served in the Air Force for four years in the early 1950s. He had been in West Germany. He related to servicemen. And one of the things I uncovered was that when he went and performed 
in Vietnam in January of 1969, there was a newspaper for GIs that quoted him as saying, you know, that he didn't agree with these people back home, you know, who were doing all the protests. And he had a, a very strongly phrased word to characterize them and, you know, supported the troops. So you can imagine that he's in his politics at that moment, he's relating to it primarily out of his own experience as a veteran, right? But then the other thing that happens is that he starts to see young people around him lost to the war in a way that I think probably he could relate to because of the loss of his brother when he was so young. But he wrote at some length about Jimmy Howard, who was the son of country singer Jan Howard and uh, and Harlan Howard, who he was very close with and had known since he was a baby, who dies in Vietnam, and how that just tore him apart. And, you know, he later goes on to write a song that's almost certainly prompted by the death of Jimmy Howard. It's called Route 1, Box 144. And so you can see like a range of experience and empathy. So on the one hand, as a veteran, he's sympathetic and empathetic towards the men who are serving. He respects the authority of his commander in chief. On the other hand, he hates the war. That's clear. He hates the war and he hates that it's costing so many American lives. And then eventually he ends up taking the side as well of young people who are protesting against the war. And he doesn't like the way that Nixon characterizes them, you know, as bums, for example, after the Cambodian invasion. So, you know, I just, I did an event a couple months ago with Roseanne Cash, and she said that when Cash, her father visited Vanderbilt University to do a special episode of the Johnny Cash television show, he said to her that he thought that he could learn more from a bunch of 19-year-olds than he could from a bunch of politicians. So he had this ability to relate to people and to empathize with a range of people, even if they weren't in the way that we think about politics ideologically on the same side. His dying barely made the morning paper You're listening to a conversation between Mark Huddle and Michael Stewart Foley about the book Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash. Michael Stewart Foley is a historian of American political culture in American civilization at the University Grenoble Alps in France. Mark Huddle is the director of the Center for Georgia Studies at Georgia College. This conversation is the ninth collaboration between WRGC and the Center for Georgia Studies to present compelling conversations about history and life in the American South. Whatever they could pay. He was thought of as just average, a good boy, nothing more, the average amount of friends. He married his high school sweetheart. They bought a little plot of ground. A couple of miles out of town on the mailbox, it said, Route 1, Box 144. I'm going to kind of shift gears a little bit with this next question. Addiction, right? You've mentioned it a couple times. It winds its way through the book. But the book is a political biography, right? You're, you're focused you know, primarily on Cassius politics. So there's no place where you 
are able to consider, for instance, how his struggles with pills and alcohol might have affected the politics that you're looking at. Mm-hmm. Um, the chapter on Billy Graham, I got a lot out of that one. I, I thought it was really interesting. And in particular, you mentioned Cash's first autobiography, Man in Black, which for reasons that I cannot remember, I read some years ago. I got it at a used bookstore and read it. I didn't realize at the time that it was, in fact, published by a religious press. Mm-hmm. And of the two autobiographies, I love that first one because there are some of the craziest stories in that uh, in that book. You know, Carl Perkins uh, drunkenly crashing a helicopter into Cash's lake outside of his house and, you know, things like that. But it's also about being born again. Uh, and it's around the time that he gets this addiction problem under control. And I, I think that there is a kind of genre of musicians, a memoir and autobiography that should be considered a part of the 12 steps. Like there is, <laughs> you know, I'm thinking, for instance, of Eric Clapton's, you know, it's totally about his alcoholism, you know, the, the entire mm-hmm. thing. You know, this guy's had one of the most legendary careers ever, but the whole memoir is that, that struggle, which is kind of how I read The Man in Black. I'm wondering if, I mean, I know that he had a religious upbringing to a certain degree, but there's long periods in Johnny Cash's life where he's not a churchgoer. And here at this particular moment when he is finally cleaning himself up and getting control over these demons, he connects with the great evangelist. I wonder if if there is a, is a connection between his addiction issues and the kind of public turn towards conservative evangelicalism. I think the way that he usually wrote about it in later years was that these things all went hand in hand, you know, that, it, that he was saved from his own demons and his own self-destructive tendencies by the grace of June Carter and God. And you could add to that probably Billy Graham. I mean, Billy Graham enters the picture a little bit later after Cash has been cleaned up and Graham takes an interest in Cash because Cash is now this fantastically successful cultural figure and has this platform on his television show and through his music to reach young people. And Graham was really interested in that. But I think, as you say, Cash was sincere in his re-embrace of his faith in those years. And certainly that autobiography is a product of that. You know, it's a product of him writing about the ways that his religious rebirth had saved him. It really is a a fascinating chapter, that one. i starting to get close on time here. So I have a kind of two-part question. The first part's a little strange, but let's for a moment, as we finish up, think about Johnny Cash as a historian. Now, obviously, you know, he wasn't professionally trained or anything like that, but he had a keen interest in history. He read everything he could get his hands on. He did copious amounts of research. 
and maybe more importantly, he, you know, he used the bully pulpit, his records and TV show, to share what he learned with the American people, try to teach them something about the past that he believed that they should know. So, you know, as a professional historian, did the historian Johnny Cash teach you anything about our craft? <laughs> That's a great question. You know, there's times when I watched the television show, which, you know, isn't commercially available, unfortunately. You have to go to the archives to be able to watch every episode of the television show. And he had this segment that ran on most episodes called Ride This Train, which was named for an album he made in 1960. And it's it's the most obvious attempt on his part to play the role of a historian where he takes uh, listeners or viewers back to a different period of American history. And nobody called it Americana at the time, but that's kind of what he used doing is trafficking in Americana. You know, it's, and it's, it's all pretty feel-good stuff, although not always, because sometimes in the telling of the betrayal of Native peoples or of African Americans or of the plight of prisoners, you know, he gets pretty blunt in those segments. But I think the thing that I learned from him, and it's the thing I've thought about a lot during this project, because I started off mostly as a historian of social movements and political movements, is the power of art to engage political questions on a level that's, I think, deeper than normally appreciated and that can reach a greater audience than your average historian can, right? Certainly more than I can. The, the kind of platform that he had with records that would sell millions of copies or his television show, which would reach millions of viewers each week and provided these kinds of history lessons, like to me is a really valuable lesson, I think for the whole profession, you know, is to think about the ways that art functions as a vehicle for historical engagement, not only political engagement, and even for teaching. Well, let me finish then by broadening out that question a little bit, right? After all okay. the blood, the sweat, the tears that you put in, you know, bringing the book about this giant of American culture into the world, what did you learn? Is there one thing that you carry away from this project that really resonated with you that you will make use of as, as you move forward with your life and career? I mean, the big lesson is, is the politics of empathy. And as you were sort of alluding at the outset, in a, in a time of political polarization, being able to engage with political questions from uh, an empathetic perspective I'm not saying that's the best way to do it because, and I'm not saying there's no role for a politics of ideology, but I think the clear lesson is that they can coexist and that what Cash shows is that engaging in politics from the perspective of one's own experience, even if that can be somewhat limiting, is at times valuable in transcending the kind of division and polarization that we're talking about. You know, I I look back on his career now and his politics and have 
on the one hand, much greater appreciation for him as a political figure, obviously, than I did when I started. I also think at times I wish he had done more and done better on certain issues. He did this whole record about the experience of exploited black working men in 1962, but didn't do enough to bring attention to the fact that that's what he was doing. You know, and it's, it's no accident that he did this whole album of all these songs, which are somewhat harrowing, and he does it in the middle of the civil rights movement. But then neither he nor Columbia Records does enough to say, look, you know, this is an important document of American history. So there can be limits in the way that one engages in it too. But I think it's a process that Cash at least showed you can evolve within it and that there's room for it in our political discourse. Excellent. Michael Stewart Foley, thank you very much for joining us in conversation. Thank you, Mark. It's been a pleasure. Johnny Cash was a country singer, but he was so much more than that. And maybe that's why we're talking about his politics 18 years after his death. Some figures transcend the art they produce. They insert themselves into the cultural matrix. In telling us about themselves, their triumphs and defeats, their demons and better angels, they tell us something about ourselves. Johnny Cash still matters because we need him to matter. One of the compelling aspects of Cash's life was his willingness to use his fame to speak on behalf of the voiceless and tackle the difficult issues that beset the nation. Race, indigenous rights, prisoners, issues of war and peace, he put himself in the middle of great national debates. Over his many years, Johnny Cash managed to delight and anger fans and foes alike. There was nothing particularly coherent about his politics. He could praise a sitting war president and stand with student protesters determined to oppose that war. His politics was messy, and yet it seems as if his stature has only grown. Now, sure, there are a great many people who will impose their own political leanings on the man. Some will declare him a God-fearing, flag-waving patriot and a conservative through and through. Others will lean into his outsider image, finding meaning in his work with the native peoples and on behalf of the incarcerated. They'll say, Johnny Cash was one of us. But I wonder if it isn't the complexity that continues to draw us in. What if, in our conflicted times, we find some comfort in the man's contradictions, the fact that he didn't have all the answers, but kept asking questions? He kept searching. Mike Foley finds the meaning of Johnny Cash's politics in what he calls the politics of empathy. Empathy. Cash cared about people. He tried to understand them, even identify with them. 
Those interactions gave meaning to his life and shaped his approach to the issues that he felt passionately about. Empathy, so necessary in a relatively free and diverse society and yet in such short supply in our current politics. Maybe Johnny Cash's great gift was his ability to show people how to care about each other even when they disagree. Michael Stewart Foley's new book is Citizen Cash, The Political Life and Times of Johnny Cash, published by Basic Books, and it is very, very good. So even if you're not much of a country music fan or even a Johnny Cash fan, check it out. You'll learn a lot. And that is it for this show. My name is Mark Huddle. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.